Before we get started, there's something I'm really excited to share with you. It's no secret that we think diversifying your income is incredibly important. One way that we do it is by investing in rental properties. We've done a ton of research, interviewed experts, and invested over $100,000 of our own money in income-producing rental properties. I am proud to announce that we're launching Rental Properties for Passive Investors. It's a course on exactly how you can passively invest in rental properties. Like our podcast, it's incredibly actionable and details exactly how we've both purchased and managed our rental properties. It also includes a year of investable, the analysis tool we use to make sure the rental properties we purchase are actually profitable. Finding the deal is half the battle. You need to know your numbers to make a profitable investment. We're running a pre-sale for $100 off. Head over to listenmoneymatters.com slash REI to learn more. That's listenmoneymatters.com slash REI for $100 off rental properties for passive investors. Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome to Listen Money Matters. Only one who devotes himself to a cause with his whole strength and soul can be a true master. For this reason, mastery demands all of a person. <laughs> My name is Thomas, and I'm here as always with the man, the myth, the master, Andrew Fiebert. What are you drinking, man? Oh, gee. <laughs> Just an arrogant bastard. Uh, truly fitting to my my opening. <laughs> One might say that I planned that, but I didn't. <laughs> I've switched to um, a Lacra. Haven't La been drinking Lacra very much, but Anna bought some, and... I'm just sharing it with her. What flavor? Uh, it's the ch- what is it? The the cherry lime one? Yeah. It's the best one, mm. I think. And it's definitely her favorite one cuz every time I buy a different flavor, she's like, "Why didn't you get cherry lime?" <laughs> 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 so, uh, there's actually another brand of sparkling water that they sell in New York and I can't get it in Denver and I'm kind of sad. I don't even know the name what of is it. it called? I can't remember the name. It's uh, I think it's like some dude's name, or like some like some person's last name as a brand name. Joe? No, it's not. It's not Joe. Mike. Funny if it was just Joe's sparkling water. <laughs> I'm gonna go start that actually. My name's not Joe, but I'm just gonna do it anyway. Um, but yeah, I think Lacroix Lacroix is the best that I have available to me in Denver. So, mm. wait, wasn't that arrogant bastard just a twelve ouncer? It is, but it's 8%. Uh, And you know what? When we first were recording, I would be uh, doing it on Fridays Mm. when I was working from home, my day job. And so I'm like, let's get wasted. (laughs) (laughs) But now I'm on my clock. So I'm like, let's be responsible. We have a business. Yeah, it's Tuesday now. I mean, once we're done with this episode, you probably have like half hour to work still, if not more. To play games. Or play games. (laughs) (laughs) Either one works. I'm certainly going to do some more work after I finish this. Uh, I've got an article to write, but then going to play some magic tonight. I'm pretty stoked nice. about that. So we're not really talking about a money-related thing today, are we? So not not directly on the nose, but I think that like uh, to be successful and make all of that money that that you also want one is you could spend none of it. Um, but you certainly have to earn it. And so this is kind of like behind the earning end of things. Okay. You have to you have to get better. 
you know, grow your skills. Yeah. So anybody who's listening to this episode probably clicked on the title and has read it mm. and knows that we're talking about the 10,000 hour rule. Um, and I guess the concept the 10,000 hour rule really explains is deliberate practice. The idea mm. of accelerating your skill development in whatever area you've chosen through intelligent practice methods. So I guess I'm curious what what's um, you know what's your what's your reasoning for picking this topic and I don't know. I uh, I kind of want to go over um, deliberate practice and just how you can become good at things okay. because. Uh, I, I don't know about you. You you are far more exceptional than me. Um, but I'm just like some guy who is not that smart, probably works slightly harder than I should. Uh, and I attribute everything to luck and just uh, being very deliberate about the things that I focus on. Come on, Andrew. What happened to the arrogant bastard? <laughs> <laughs> that's what, that's when the recording Getting stops. Getting all humble over here. That's your deliberate practice skill. Is humility. <laughs> that's, that's the one I have to work on. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think you're pretty good at it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Tell you're my so wife. good at being humble. You're like the best at humility in the world. <laughs> okay, so I kind of gave a definition of it, but in, in your words, what is deliberate practice and how do you put it into action for whatever you're doing? So um, in, in reading things, and, and Laura helped enormously just pulling stuff together, I, I thought this one piece was interesting. Uh, so I'm just going to okay. read it. There was this uh, virtuoso violinist named Nathan Milstein. Um, apparently, he's like really good. Um, and he said, uh, practice as much as you feel you can accomplish with concentration. Once I become concentrated, once I become concerned, once, comma, when I became concerned, when others around me were practicing all day long, I asked my professor, how many hours should I practice? And he said, it doesn't really matter how long. If you practice with your fingers, no amount is enough. If you practice with your head, two hours is plenty. And mm. the, I guess what I pull out of that is if you're trying to be an expert violinist, you can play music forever and you should be constantly playing to get better. But if you are playing and thinking about the music that you're making and is it good and if it's not, why? Or I made this mistake, how can I not do it again? And you're always analyzing what you do to become better at it. Um, you don't need to practice as much uh, because you're being deliberate and thoughtful about yeah. it. So I want to go into... Um, like more depth on like how you do it because mm -hmm. I think it's really easy to say 10,000 hours, which by the way was like literally pulled out of Malcolm Gladwell's ass. Like he pretty much admits that someone asked him like how much hours it takes to become an expert. He's like, I don't know, 10,000 hours. Like he just <laughs> ma literally made it up and it kind of just was a really sound bitey thing. Yeah. Um, because, because there's actually, uh, like things that you could do or, or like, uh, mindful ways to approach uh, learning, getting better at things, problems, so that uh, it won't take you as long. And um, not as this, not like this is a litmus test for anything, but, you know, it was less than five years for Listen My Matters to replace my income, mm -hmm. many of which things I had no idea what I was doing. Thomas, you have 
less than a hundred. I, I think you have less than a hundred videos on your YouTube channel. No, I have 137. 137. Ah, so you're like an always an overachiever. Well, I just but, I know because I'm writing an article about <laughs> YouTube, so I had to go count them. <laughs> but anyways, the point being is, you know, uh, you have like, and I don't know how meaningful this is in the grand scheme of things. We have you have a million followers mm-hmm. or on on YouTube with only a hundred something videos. So, you know, it's this thing where um, if you really spend ten thousand hours making videos, I would imagine that you might have multiple hundreds of videos. But I know that you spend a lot of your time in specific areas of the craft, trying to understand why other people are successful Mm -hmm. and perhaps emulating that in your style. And and I think this like is broadly applicable to life. And so I want to like break down um, the components of like deliberate practice and what you need to do to go from literally truck driver to rock star developer or, or any related thing. Uh, so before we get into that, can I just like give a little bit my own, my own philosophy on this whole 10,000 hours question? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. I guess we'll just No, please do. Please do. Okay. Uh, so I guess the one thing I'll say up front is I've got 137 videos on my channel. Um, I thought it was 133. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure it's at 137. I don't know. It's every in, time I ask you, there's more. It's What's in the going 130s. On? Some of those are bonus videos. Some of them didn't take very long to make. Um, the one that took me the longest to make took about 30 hours of time from mm. conception through research, filming, editing, and uploading. I would say the average video probably takes 12 to 15 hours. Mm. And obviously, me watching other YouTubers watching films, doing research on lenses and filmmaking techniques and stuff that, that also goes into mastery. So even if we just totally doubled that number and said like, all right, 24 hours per video uh, at 137 videos is 3,200 hours. So that's not even a third of 10,000, but that's enough to apparently build a channel with a million followers. And I guess The thing here is that there is no definition or there's no standard time that it takes to become a master in anything because every discipline has its own um, generally agreed upon either benchmark for mastery or examples of masters. And I would say, and I think if you asked anybody who is considered to be a master would also say that the bar for mastery is constantly moving. Yeah, I don't consider myself a master YouTuber um, now, if I were, if my, if my three years ago self were to look at me now, he would probably say like, you are now a master YouTuber. But from my own vantage point right now, I look at people like Peter McKinnon and Casey Neistat. Uh, I look at animators. I look at people who do things that I wasn't even aware of three years ago. And I think like those people are masters and I can't even on, come close to what they're doing. On the constantly moving bar thing, and I'm going to butcher the timelines, but back way back, the average IQ was like a hundred. And I think now the average is like one thirty something. And, uh, they actually, uh, test you much harder and are much more critical now than in the past. Uh, it's called the Flynn effect and Mm -hmm. it's, uh, we are just becoming ever smarter. And so like for you to be an average IQ now is harder than it was back in the day when they have like internet and all these things and 
mm-hmm. there weren't random podcasts talking about deliberate practice. Yeah. So I guess the the moral here, if anything, is you don't need to be counting up the hours to 10,000 or to any arbitrarily set benchmark. What you need to be doing is making sure the hours you do put in count, regardless and, of how many there are. So, okay. So, and, and I want to talk about that and, and, and kind of expand on it because um, obviously there's the whole, you could be spending 10 hours uh, you know, playing the violin versus like two really thoughtfully doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's part of it. But I think, uh, the biggest piece that is missed is, uh, risk taking where, okay. where you're putting it, we're putting yourself out there and, uh, attempting things and you may fail. And, you know, if I was to say in, in the business, like I've listened to my matters, I'm trying to sell ads and, I fail because I try like weird attempts and I don't know, whatever, but I can only succeed because I failed. You know, the, the violinist is only good because they played how many, um, concerts and allow themselves to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this really cool, uh, example that Laura found of lobsters and lobsters have like these like hard shells uh, that don't grow like unlike mm-hmm. turtles where their shell is like part of their body and they grow. Um, and so as a lobster grows, they become more and more uncomfortable. Um, and uh, the only way to really grow and become more of what they, they are meant to be is to shed their shell and essentially hide because they, they would have no shell or it's really soft and they, they, have they to could die. One. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, lobsters have to be uncomfortable to grow and it's literally those moments of uncomfort that improve them. Mm-hmm. But we have as like humans, this whole thing where you get uncomfortable and then you like, you hide on your couch or you take like, I don't know, a drug like Percocet or something to like <laughs> help. And uh, you would actually, like, if, if you remove all those risks and potentials for failure from your world, like you, you can't get better. And so yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think if there is a like overall point to life, you know, whether or not there is one, I think one of them is that life and its progression is defined by a cycle of stress and discomfort and almost combat Mm. with yourself or with your environment or with something and then a corresponding period of rest to regroup, to... Uh, allow the cells to regrow, to adapt to the changes, to give them some time to rest, but then you have to get right back into it. Mm. And if you go into a period of comfort for too long, you really do stagnate. And I think that uh, too long of a period of comfort can actually be a cause of death. Yes. Or at least a cause of decline, cognitive decline, muscular decline, all kinds of stuff. Um, they, you know, astronauts that go into space, well, if they spend too long in orbit, they actually come down to earth with dangerous levels of bone density loss oh, wow. because the body realizes, Oh, these bones aren't supporting anything. There's no gravity for them to fight against. Might as well get rid of them instead of spending resources on keeping them dense and strong. You know, there's tons of research that show that uh, people who retire and then like do nothing, uh, their health declines rapidly. Yeah. Um, 
versus like people who, I don't know, never retire or have something to fill their time when mm-hmm. they retire so that they are constantly like in that struggle. Like they're, yeah. they're in and out of combat. I th- yeah, I think you, you always need to have something that you were in combat with. Mm. And that doesn't mean like it's something that you view as like an enemy and you have animosity towards, but there's something that either is too daunting for you right now or presents a challenge in some way that you're going to have to fight to overcome it, mm. whatever it is. And I think that's what, what keeps people healthy. Like they have something to aim for. So another thing that I think uh, isn't discussed much um, is is learning from people who have won or do something well. Uh, it is a secret, non-secret, and I know amongst people that we roll with in business or just generally, whether it's like products out there, you know, Facebook versus Snapchat, is that um, you look at people who have done things well and you quote unquote steal the great things and the great ideas and then run them through you, your mind, your point of view, like make them your own. Mm -hmm. um, And that's how you get better. And so if you look at at least listen money matters through the course of time i could tell you every single thing that i copied from which person whether it was the episodes we made or the way that we built our site or whatever and so i think if you look at something that someone else did and you think it is awesome or or you think it's like 80 percent of the way there and just needs a little bit more you shouldn't uh feel bad about copying or quote unquote stealing it it is part of the the learning and development process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you can go back into my YouTube channel's history and I wear my influences on my sleeve in many, many videos. Though the one thing that should be mentioned when it comes to observing people who have succeeded and trying to figure out what their techniques are is that, um, number one, there's a survivorship bias. Mm. So one company may have taken a risk and it paid off due to one set of circumstances that you couldn't see at the time and luck. and you know maybe 10 other companies tried the same thing but they were unlucky or they did it at the wrong time and they all failed so there's the survivorship bias angle and there's also the fact that certain tactics work at a specific stage in a company or your person's life cycle and they won't work at an earlier or later stage so if you are you know, somebody who has very little leftover money at the end of the month, you're you're getting a startup off the ground. If we're just like, man, the best thing I ever did for my life was hiring an assistant. Mm. You probably shouldn't go blow your budget on an assistant because that wasn't something that would have been helpful to us when we were still in total garage mode. Yeah. So you always have to consider, like you, you observe the masters, you observe the successful people, see what they're doing, and then run the techniques that you pull out of that observation process through a filter of, does this work for me right now? Would this you know, likely be a good tech, uh, tactic to apply to my own life at my current stage? And is there some sort of survivorship bias that I need to take into account? Or do I believe that this technique actually is something that is very worth doing? Mm. You know, And that sometimes maybe takes research. 
beyond just observing the master. So, so we've got uh, the the willingness to take risks, and you know whether it's with investments or building a business or your education or just mm-hmm. your your career, like uh, taking that meeting with an upper management person and giving a presentation, even though it sucks. Like these these are risks. There are growth opportunities masked as like a risk or something scary. Um, you know, very thoughtful practice. Uh, you know, like trying doing things to improve. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. learning from people that you admire. Um, one of one of my favorite quotes, or one that obviously I, I love because I'm kind of obsessed with data, is "What gets measured gets managed," and. Mm-hmm. Um, when when you kind of leave everything out there to do whatever it does, maybe it's your, your budget and your personal finances or your business or um, I don't know a million things that you can measure uh, your speed if you're like a runner or something. If you track it over time, uh, then you can actually try and improve. But if you're not measuring it, uh, it's really hard to know if you're doing better if you're trying things that are working versus just trying random things. And yeah. so um, you should have like barometers for yourself. If it's your budget, you know, maybe it's meeting your budget is for a certain amount of months and then refining it, cutting down your expenses. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And if it's say, if it's music, maybe once per week you put on a metronome and you challenge yourself to, you know, play through a section of the major scale with that metronome. And the next week, uh, you, you know, make it a little bit faster or you challenge yourself to alternate pick it instead of down pick the whole thing, or you record yourself and you listen back and you try to count the mistakes or you just, maybe you're not counting or quantifying it, but you're just, you have a recording so you can say, okay, this week's recording versus last week's recording sounds much cleaner. There's a lot more musicality in it. It doesn't sound quite so lifeless. When you can see yourself progressing, even if it isn't quantified, you're going to make better progress. I think it's good to have a record of what you've done in the past somehow. You know, and that's the great thing about like this business, the great thing about a YouTube channel. Your, I mean, everything you've done is sitting there. Yeah. And it's all true. You tra- can go back and they look have at data it. data for you, it shows <laughs> you everything. And, and I just think it's, look, and it goes kind of back to you had discussed. We, I think we, I feel like we discussed the equal odds rule so much, uh, but it's this whole thing where uh, you're trying these random things, and uh, it, it's all kind of like a lottery ticket, right? Like you have these hypotheses, whether it's mm-hmm. actions that you take or things that you create, um, but you have to do what works. You have to let that inform what you do next. Yeah. So, I think any discussion about deliberate practice would be incomplete Mm. without talking about um, the skill acquisition process and how you can most efficiently go about doing that practice. So we've talked about taking risks. We've talked about observing the masters. We've talked about creating a record and, uh, you know, building some metrics into your practice so you can actually see how you progress over time. Right. But I think the question in most listeners' heads right now is going to be like, how do I practice? What am I supposed to do? What what does deliberate practice really mean beyond just concentrate and use your head? Um, So I did a video on this a little while ago, which was based off of a book called The First 20 Hours by Josh Kaufman. And he's the same guy who wrote The Personal MBA, which is one of my favorite books. 
Uh, Tim Ferriss has also talked a lot about rapid skill acquisition and the four hour chef is actually like that book will teach you how to cook, but the book's think that it real teaches purpose you how is to rapid learn skill deconstruction or how, or how and acquisition. To... So both of those are great uh, resources. Mm. Yes, I think it. it's like that, that book is all about learning quickly. That is the most appealing description of this book that I've heard. The lens through uh, which he yeah, like his process. Uh, that and, I find fascinating. Um, oh, really? There's a whole section. In fact, like so, there's the intro, and then the first chapter of the book is just a mm. straight up breakdown of his whole philosophy on rapid skill acquisition before you get into cooking at all. Uh, and then there's the whole, and the, the cooking part takes up the majority of right, the book, right. but it's all in service of showing you like, this is how you become a master in less time. Um, so this is the way that I interpreted it. The first thing you want to do is take whatever skill it is that you're trying to learn to become a master in, and you want to deconstruct it. So let's say you're trying to become a guitarist. There are many different sub skills within the skill of playing the guitar just as there are many different subskills in building a business or you know getting your financial life in order in guitar there's things like strumming patterns there's finger picking there's playing chords there's learning different scales reading standard notation reading tabs all kinds of stuff so if you come into it you need to break that down into all the different subskills and then use that 80/20 rule Pick the ones that you think are going to be most effective for what you want to do and focus on those first. And I, th I think like it even is worth mentioning that this is like uh, perhaps phase one because you you broke down like all of these skills, uh, you know, to play the guitar of which I had no yep. idea were skills that were necessary or part of playing guitar. And I think what happens is as you start to learn or try to do a specific thing, there is probably some little tangential thing that you also need to learn how to do to complete the mm -hmm. thing you're working on. So you go and look to see what that is or how to do it. And then perhaps it opens a few more doors of other tangential things. And so to look yeah. at the final product of like a Dragon Force guitar rift, which is like insanity, yeah. you set out to do it under like the the assumption that you're going to have to learn a ton of skills that you don't even know you don't know like mm -hmm. on the journey exactly yeah and the nice thing about doing this going through this process where you focus on a couple of different sub skills is like you said you're going to go off on little tangential side adventures but they are the product of you having a mission that pops up Oh, I really want, okay, what is he doing here? It's, oh, it's a hammer-on. Okay, I need to learn hammer-ons. You didn't know about that when you came into the skill. So, and I, I think that this is often the best way to learn just in time learning rather than just in case mm. learning. So when the need arises, you're like, I really need to be able to do this thing. How do I do it? Now your brain is much more engaged. And if you go out and learn that skill, you're going to keep it in your head a lot more effectively than if you're just sitting there at the beginning thinking I need to learn chords and scales and how to read music right now because I might need it someday. Your brain doesn't care yeah. about I might need it. Your brain cares about I need it right now. And look, so you, you embark on this journey to to uh, compete with Dragon Force as a guitar player um, and you don't know if this is going to work out or if this is for you, right? And so you're, you're 
looking at the very early steps of things to learn, you know, and you're working on it. And um, I think the way to tell if you should even go towards the 10,000 hours or perhaps nip it is when you're learning, there will be a lot of it will be challenging, but some of it will be fun challenging where like you're mm-hmm. doing it. It's taking you a while, but you're, you're, you're feeling better or, or you're just like you're appreciating the progress and there will be pieces that you're doing it well as you're learning and it sucks and it's really hard and it just is the worst, but you have to get through it. And it's the balance of the two where the things where it's really a lot hard and you're just not enjoying it and you wind up not finding time to do it because of that. That's that means you're pursuing the wrong thing. But if, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe 20 percent of them are really hard and you slog through it because the 80 percent of the learning is just really fulfilling and enjoyable. That's something that you should, you know, attempt to go towards the 10,000 hours. Yeah. So the third step here is to eliminate any barriers to success. Mm -hmm. So that might mean not having the tools you need. Okay, go buy the tools you need. Buy yourself a guitar. Buy yourself some picks. Buy like 10 picks because you're inevitably going to lose one. (laughs) And then you're going to, that's a barrier. Oh, I don't have a pick. Buy 10 picks. They're cheap. That's the easy um, one, spending money, buying the things. That one's easy, yeah. And actually, so have we? I think we've talked about this in a previous episode. Um, there's like three types of progress in any skill. Mm-hmm. There's progress that comes as a result of you making a purchase, which gives you access to the tools you need. There's progress that comes as a result of you going out and learning something by reading an article or reading a book. And then there's progress that comes as a result of doing the practice. Mm-hmm. The problem is... When you go and buy a piece of gear, you get like this jolt of psychological energy. You feel like, yeah, you feel like you've taken a huge step. I didn't have a guitar before. I have a guitar now. And that could be addictive. Mm. Whereas doing the work and putting in the practice is really difficult and the results are slow and they are hard. So a lot of people can get into this, this rut where, and I see this with learning as well. You know, people will go read a productivity tips article and they'll be like, wow, I know, I know how to do that now. Or they'll go and read every single business book ever. And they're so proud of all these business and personal development books that they've read, but they haven't actually spent a whole lot of time putting those things they learned into action. So they just keep reading another book and another book and they get like this, these good feelings and good vibes, but they never actually get anywhere. Like if you got a room full of guitar gear, but you can't play it, what are you doing with your life? It kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, I had a Walmart skateboard because my parents wouldn't buy me a really cool one. And I had shoes from shoe carnival and like, I didn't have cool skate clothes, but I was out there practicing and there would be kids at school and their parents would buy them all the coolest shit, all the name brand skateboards, perfectly custom built deck, all the Quicksilver shirts and the element shoes. And they'd be like, well, you're not a real skateboarder. Cause you don't have a pop war deck and you don't have Quicksilver shoes or whatever. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but I just learned how to kickflip yesterday and you can't even ollie yet. So why are you making <laughs> fun of me? Because, you know, they, they feel like they're a pro just because they own right, the right. shit. So, like, you can't let yourself become addicted to buying gear or reading articles. You have to remember that the third type of practice is the one that, in the end, is the only one that really matters if you want to be able to do the thing. So... 
I think the big the biggest barrier that people face is is demotivation when it starts to get hard and and the uh, the progress starts to slow down because there's only so much gear you, you know, can and, buy. And I don't want even I don't want to underemphasize or, or overemphasize whatever like going in the wrong direction and knowing that you're going in the wrong direction. Like uh, you say say you love sports and you are always building fantasy sports teams and you could just rattle off all the stats of all these players and and you just kill it in that general realm. And, you know, maybe people give you shit, but like, oh, you could spend 20 hours on fantasy sports, but you can't do the dishes or whatever. Um, perhaps the enjoyment that you get out of building the fantasy sport teams, which is highly analytical, um, you know, it's strategy based, perhaps the things that you should attempt to master uh, play upon those skills because that's what you find enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, look at what you do. And what you spend your free time on and kind of take inspiration from that. Yeah. I've actually heard that used as a uh, career selection advice as well. Uh, Look at what you do. So, you know, a lot of times high school kids don't know what they want to do as a career. And sometimes they're told, well, what do you do on a daily basis? And if you look at that on the face, like I play video games or I, I draw or something like that. Maybe there's not a one-to-one comparison. That doesn't mean that you should be a video game developer or an artist, but there are elements of that activity that transfer over to other activities, you know? So if you are the kind of person who, like you said, loves to get into the data and be super analytical and, and build things like that, then maybe you're not the kind of person who wants to work with a ton of people all day. Maybe you want to work with like a bunch of data and, and systems and if you really like building things, maybe you shouldn't do a job that is really maintenance-based, mm. like maintaining computer networks. Maybe it would be a lot better for you to be a programmer where you're actually coding and making something from scratch. That's pretty useful to think about, I think. So um, within this process, you have to eliminate those barriers. And you, one way you can do that is by setting goals for yourself. Um, and I think it is very important to set goals that you can achieve in a somewhat small amount of time. So with our little guitarist example, if you are at square one and have never played guitar before, your first goal should not be to play the solo from Through the Fire and Flames by Dragon (laughs) Force because that's going to take you literally years to be able to do. But you can play, um, there's some... I don't even know anymore. Like there's audio slave songs. I was going to say a green day or something or or a green day song. Yeah. You can learn that really easily. You can learn the intro to welcome home by Coheed and Cambria in like an afternoon. It might sound shitty and it might be slow, but you can play the notes and figure it out probably on your first day. So whatever skill you're doing, you have to find what I like to call intermediate goals. And one of my favorite examples was this, this girl who challenged herself to build a website every single day. Mm-hmm. And that was the way she learned how to code. For I think it was 80 days, she made a website every day. And a lot of them were really small, and most of them only demonstrated one concept. I think the first one was literally just a header and a paragraph and a background color, and that was it. But by the end of it, she was doing HTML5 canvas elements and sound elements and putting things together to make it more complex layouts, doing nested tables or floating divs and CSS stuff. 
And if she had come in on day one and looked at a website like apple.com and said, I want to build that, I think most people are going to get into it. They're going to realize how difficult it was. And they're going to give up because it's like an unachievable. No, they're going to give up. Yeah. Exactly. So the kind of person who's able to build an apple.com is the kind of person who set little sub goals or middle goals along the way that they can achieve because then you can actually see progress. So like take the, the thing that you want to do and break it down into like the most smallest, like itemized pieces, you know, uh, like mm-hmm. sign up for uh, an online hosting, like HostGator or something, and just pay them. And that's like step one. And then step two is like, yeah. you know, get WordPress installed and set a basic, you know, and you just slowly set like things you could achieve mm-hmm. in like one to two hours. Yeah. I, I do want to add in, I recently took mm-hmm. a few courses and like smaller ones, not like all encompassing, you know, learn the world, but like very focused task based yeah. things. And uh, I found them really helpful. And so perhaps if you're digging around and, and trying to solve something and you're not quite getting it um, on your own, like the next best thing is you could spend like 15 to $25 on a really focused something that'll teach you that skill mm-hmm. to unstuck you. Yeah. You know, I think like sometimes I say I don't use courses, but I think the litmus test is does the yeah. course seem interesting? Because if it does, why not? It needs take to it? scratch like a specific, you know, especially itch for like. Me. Yeah, so for me, I was like, okay, I've I've kind of narrowed down that Ableton is the software that I want to learn. I just kind of want to know the ins and outs of it. I'm just gonna go grab this course. You know, it was on Udemy.com. It was like ten dollars, and it was like here's I'm gonna just run through like. 100 hours right, of right. stuff. And I don't know if I'll finish it, but it's it's sustaining my interest right now. You know, and I'm just going to get myself to the point where I'm, I can get some stuff in there and start playing it around. And if I get to the point where I don't need the course anymore and I kind of know what I want to do, that's fine. It was 10 bucks. Well, you will have <laughs> to let us know um, when your first album is out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I have no goal for an <laughs> album yet. I have a goal for getting some recorded guitar into Ableton and uh, then I'll set a small goal after that. I really want to see you play a guitar solo mm-hmm. while figure skating. That's just kind of uh, <laughs> something I've always wanted. And I actually made a joke <laughs> about <did>? that. <laughs> yeah. A while ago. Yeah. She's like, when are you going to do, like, do figure skating and play guitar at the same time? <laughs> I was like, you know what? I could probably make some like Las Vegas show. And now I will do a triple axle guitar solo. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Resulting in a broken ankle and right. guitar. But hey, are you not entertained? <laughs> and then, so the last step in this process here is to simply practice mm. deliberately. So you've got your mini goals. You've got your barriers out of the way. You know which subskills you're going to tackle. At that point, you practice deliberately. And, and you need to uh, constantly review what you're doing. You know, perhaps record what you're doing, uh, like what was good, yeah. what was bad, mistakes you made. Um, I think that that's super important too. And the biggest thing is deliberate practice is practice on something that takes it up to the next level. So if you already know how to play Stairway to Heaven on your guitar and you're just noodling around playing that for the bazillionth time, that's not deliberate practice. 
it may make you slightly better at that stairway to heaven and slightly better at guitar in general, but using that time to learn a new song or learn a new technique that you're currently not good at, that's what deliberate practice is. It's about pushing the needle and getting and, yourself and you know what like inadvertently zone. happens. So you, you go, whether you're going to be a guitarist or I don't know, like a professional power lifter or wh whatever it is in becoming a master at this, you actually wind up becoming really good at just learning um, because you spend so much time at learning. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, like, uh, all the, the spoils go to the best learners, the people who just absorb information and are constantly evolving. So if for no other reason, you know, mm -hmm. try and become the master at something so that you could become the master at learning. Yep. Um, there's this math professor at Stanford. His name is Ravi Vakil. And he did this whole lecture where he talked about like how the entire way that really great mathematicians end up learning is that they shoot way far ahead of where they currently are in one little direction. And it's like this crazy tendril going off in a random area. It's totally away from their comfort zone. And then they backfill as needed when they realize that there's a gap between that little area and their mm. main general bank of knowledge. But that's fine. It's almost as if like shooting out into a random direction gives you like an anchor point and will probably accelerate that backfill process. So don't worry about the order. Just worry about pursuing the things that interest you and doing it in a deliberate way that gets you out of your comfort zone. It should feel like work, but often fun work. <laughs> think we covered it? I think so. Cool. Well, um, usually I don't plug my site, but I think there's, there's probably a good tie-in here in this episode. Uh, so this whole process that I went through, the four-step process of deconstructing the skill, selecting your sub-skills, eliminating barriers, and deliberate practice. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, yeah, there's an article I wrote on about uh, all about that, and we'll link to it in the show notes. It does use guitar as the example, which is why. <laughs> and I guess I'm, I'm also learning guitar now as well. Um, but we'll have that in the show notes if you want to review that. And we'll also link to things like the 10,000-hour rule and some of the stuff that is in the show notes here. There's a lot of really good additional blog posts and all kinds of stuff. So... Check out our show notes over at listenmoneymatters.com slash show. You can find the show notes for all of our episodes at that link. You can also find our favorite tools, apps, books, and other resources for improving your financial standing in life and your knowledge in general at our toolbox, which you can find at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you in next week's episode. Later, man. Later, dude. Please tell your friends about this show.